This is Glenn Murphy with NC Systema, and this is Systema for Life. Howie, welcome back to the podcast. Good to have you. Good to be here. So today I thought we'd talk a little bit about um, a pretty universal subject and one that I spend a lot of time thinking about, both inside and outside of class, and that's fear and stress and the relationship between them and and how Sistema helps us deal with those things. Okay, let's do it. Great. So um, Sistema has this quite unique, I think, as a martial art emphasis on the psychological aspects um, of fear and stress. Um, that, course how they relate to kind of self-defense and combat but also how kind of getting a more intimate relationship with these two things can just help you out in wider life right so um lots of different martial arts and even things that are non-martial like yoga and meditation training purport to help you in your wider life with um stress and anxiety and, and, and stuff like that and um, but i've not really found as many things as effective as systema and i've been really intrigued as to what's what's really behind that terms of uh science and the neuroscience and and how effective it is and and the kind of the overview is that in a lot of ways systemas like um a very effective form of stress exposure therapy um, or extension therapy and we can go on to exactly what um kind of designates that a little bit later on um but just before kind of we kick off and get rolling um what's your experience of kind of training in systema and has it as it relates to stress and fear, has have you seen any kind of long-held fears disappear? We had the previous podcast on the cold water dousing, and your fear of cold seems to have gone away, given that you run shirtless marathons now and all that kind of stuff in the freezing. Is, is there any other aspect, or is that the only one that's kind of really here? Um, well, I wouldn't say that my fear of cold has gone away, because <laughs> every single morning I have a fear of cold, um, but it's, you know, it's sort of feel the fear and do it anyway sort of thing. So it's... Um, it's maybe taken the rough edges off the fear. Um, I think in many ways, and, and, and maybe I, before I answer, I would love you to define maybe the difference between stress and fear. I was reading a book this week called The Fear Cure by Lisa Rankin, and she's talking about basically when we say stress, most of the time we mean fear because it's cool to talk about stress, but it's not cool to talk about fear. So I wonder like, what, what your definitions are of those terms. Yeah, I mean, in some ways they're on the continuum. Right? Um, fear, stress, unfortunately, has become kind of an, an almost useless catch-all term in a lot of ways. And, and people, especially the younger generation now, you know, millennials, will use stress just to denote almost any emotion. Like I was, oh, I, I'm so stressed out. I saw Trump on the TV, and he was just, you know, he molested this woman. It's like that, that's disgust. <laughs> that's contempt. That's not stress, right? Or like uh, I'm really stressed out by, you know, I've got this. Um, you know, gig coming up or something like that that I really want to go to with my friends. It's just stressing me out. I've got to get ready for it. It's like, no, that's anticipation, right? So if you conflate and confuse all of your emotions and put them under this one bracket of stress, it means that stress itself doesn't mean anything. And you can't, and that means you're always stressed, right? Because we always feel emotions. So if you label every single emotion that you have, every emotional feeling of stress, then you're on a losing um, game there. And I think, uh, you know, some other people have talked a lot about that, um, about how if you just start to think that all stress is terrible, then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy and it actually will make you feel, you know, terrible and you'll build up anxiety. But in very real terms, um, there's kind of a, a, diff a psychological distinction between stress, which is usually subdefined as anxiety, right, um, in psychology, and fear as two different kind of aspects. 
in that fear has a concrete object. You have to, there's a concrete cause for fear and it's immediate. It's right in front of you. Um, and it's episodic, which means that um, there's an onset of fear and then it goes away when the object of the fear goes away. Right. So there's a concrete cause for it, like a venomous spider or like, a, you know, or, you know, a person that you're terrified of, a bully if you're a kid at school or something like that. Right. And when the bully goes away or the venomous spider turns out not to be venomous or it goes away or something like that, then the fear subsides. Right. Um, maybe not immediately, but pretty quickly. Stress, uh, in the, as it's defined as anxiety, doesn't. Um, it doesn't have to have a concrete cause. It can be an amorphous cause. It can be an imagined one. Um, it can be one that's kind of half conjured from memory and half conjured from experience. Um, and it's not episodic in that it's, it can stay on for a long, long time. So that's usually the distinction that's made, that fear has a concrete cause and it comes and goes, um, whereas anxiety or stress in that kind of term has a non-concrete cause or can have non-concrete causes and just persists for days, weeks, or months. And it's that kind of thing that can lead to anxiety disorders or threat kind of processing disorders, of which there are lots, right? PTSD is one of the most famous, but there are lots of like generalized anxiety disorder or specific anxiety disorder and things like that. And they're not really fear disorders. They're anxiety disorders, right? So those are characterized by you don't have to have the thing there in order to be experiencing it, right? It's just all day, every day. Uh, so, so it sounds like so the soldier who's in the battle is having a fear response yeah. in the battle, and then when they come home and they have the battle in their mind every night, and when they walk to the mall, yeah. that's stress. Mm-hmm. So it's the it's sort of the the body's repetition of the fear as if it was present, right. ev- even when it's not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and this brings us to how something with kind of like a militaristic background like Sistema can be useful for everyday life, right? In that um, for the most part, um, the beginnings of like the the kinds of training that we do, both physical and psychological, have roots in old Slavic fighting cultures. And and they weren't really enormously concerned with post-traumatic stress disorder, right? They were mostly like, you have to be strong enough to think and behave and move uh, in battle, right? Be, to be able to get through the next five minutes and defend your village and your homeland and all that kind of stuff right so um so that was most of what it started out as and then i think throughout the 20th century as it was kind of systematized and analyzed um it was discovered that this would be very very useful for creating kind of like super soldiers or special operations guys who could go do a mission that was enormously fear inducing right and then come back um, and then have the capacity to do that again and again and again without crumbling and going into a bad place right and so some aspect of this training the stress exposure training is now um, pretty much universal across special operations groups and to, and to a lesser extent across kind of like, you know, lower level military groups, um, you know, kind of grunt level um, infantry and stuff like that as they go in. But it's not as, um, I don't think it's emphasized quite as much for, for your everyday um, military folks, unfortunately. And that, I think that has led to a lot of the PTSD and there's other kind of issues as well. That's and the way that people are redeployed again and again, and they're not given the support after they come back. There's other things as well. Um, but I think that this lack of an emphasis on, or well, how do you deal with this post-traumatic reaction, right? Um, or are you prepared enough for that? It's not enough just to put a mask on your fear and turn it into aggression, right? That helps you to get desensitized so that you can kill people, right? Um, but it doesn't help you with the aftermath of having killed somebody or the aftermath of having been somewhere and seen some terrible things, right? So. Okay, so so back to your question about me and the training. Here's, there's two things that I've noticed. One is that I certainly still have fear responses, like in you know, and arguably, like Gavin De Becker would write, you know, they're they're useful, they're life saving, yeah. um, and and I don't know if they've been 
modulated that much, but I do know that I can recover from them. So when the fear event is over, I can come back to a, a sort of steady state. So I don't have some sort of post fear stress continuity. That's one thing that I've noticed from the training. The second thing that I've noticed, and this, this feels very profound to me is that I, I end up feeling a lot less sort of defensive aggressive in, in situations with people. And I can, and I know it's true because I feel it rising. So I'll be in a conversation with someone or a meeting uh, or have an encounter with someone at a store or a customer support person. And I can feel the old pattern beginning. And I'm like, I just want to fucking punch them. Can I say that? Yes. Not safe for work. Okay. <laughs> I, and you know, and I can just, I can feel the aggression, which is, which is clearly based like, like they're not threatening me physically. It's completely psychological. And whether it's, you know, I feel like, I'm ashamed of something or they're wasting my time or whatever it is. I can feel it rising. And then I feel some circuit calming me down and it doesn't feel um, conscious. It doesn't feel like intentional. It feels like it's become a a new kind of freedom to step back and say, what, what do I want to do in this situation versus the way I, I would before I would feel hijacked. And then afterwards I'm like, you know, even if even if I should have gotten angry, I should have gotten angry by choice and not because I didn't have a choice. Yeah, I love that. That's great. A new kind of freedom. That's going on the T-shirt the next year. <laughs> <laughs> that's our new tagline. Let's just try to get some more people in. They're great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and actually, that that term hijack is one that's used fairly extensively um, in stress literature and science literature. When they talk about amygdala hijack, right? Um, this whole idea. So. Um, so as a general kind of overview of what happens, right, when you get triggered either into a stress anxiety response or into a stress fear response, right, however you're going to subdefine those two things, um, it starts, of course, in your brain um, in the sense that you have to perceive some sort of threat, right? If you're unconscious, then you can't perceive a threat and therefore there's no threat response, right? And there's no anxiety response. You're not anxious while you're asleep, right? You might be manifesting physical signs of it because you've been anxious all day, but you're not actually anxious while you're asleep, right? Um, so it does start in the brain in that sense, but it very quickly jumps into the body. It's largely a state of the body, not a state of mind for the most part. Right. Um, and it starts in what's called the HPA axis. So it's in the hypothalamus, um, pituitary axis, basically. So it's the middle part of the brain, the limbic system. Um, the hypothalamus is part of that and it's the seat of the, the emotions, right? So fear, um, disgust, arousal, all the basal kind of things that drive us towards and away from things, right? And shared by most animals on the planet, right? Um, not the outer cortical bit, which is um, not unique to humans, but highly developed in humans. And we have a lot more of it to give us conscious awareness and executive control and function and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but anyway, so when the threat is perceived, it's perceived largely in this limbic system, mostly within the hypothalamus and the amygdala um, are the two little bits that like kind of little... I don't know, bean sprouts or something in the middle of the um, hypothalamus, um, which are the kind of switches for this stress or fear response, right, that go on. And they produce some hormones, and there's one called um, corticotrophic releasing hormone, right? That basically then goes from the hypothalamus to the pituitary gland, which is kind of behind the eyes, a little bit like front of the brain. Um, that causes uh, releases another hormone called adrenocorticotropic hormone, ACTH, that's the one that travels through the bloodstream to the adrenal glands, 
And it's in the adrenal glands that we get these stress hormones or glucocorticoids, um, which the famous ones are adrenaline or epinephrine and cortisol, right? And it's these that cause these physical changes that we associate with stress, right? So there's your, um, your pupils dilate, um, your breathing changes, it'll get more erratic. Um, actually, the bronchi will open up, so your airways will open up slightly to try and um, allow more air in, but you also increase your ventilation rate typically and <laughs> start breathing fast and ragged and rapid kind of that way. Um, your blood flow will change. Your heart rate goes up. Um, your blood vessels will either narrow or widen out, so vasoconstriction or vasodilation. But it's not all over the body, right, uniformly. It, it does that in a very specific way to shunt or redirect blood flow around the body, mostly away from the core of the body towards the limbs to prepare you to run or fight, and towards the head, mostly to, for the sense organs, not to help you think, um, but to help you sense to like to see where the danger's coming from and hear where it's coming from and just get away, right? That's kind of the feeling. Um, so it doesn't really help you think in a lot of ways, right? There's a minimal amount of stress that will shunt some blood to your head and then you'll get that kind of challenge response, right? And do that kind of stuff. But beyond beyond that, very, very quickly, you, you get stress stupid, right? You get kind of that adrenal dump thing where you really not, you, you actually, what happens at that point is the amygdala start rerouting um, signals, um, nerve signals away from, the outer part of your brain. So you actually lose access to your humanity. You lose the ability to reason, to plan, um, to speak, right? You can't get anything out, you know, when, you, when you're that angry or you're that afraid. And uh, so that starts to shut down. And these physical effects, the changes to your breathing, the changes to your blood flow, and the change, changes to physical tonus in the muscles, right? That the resting muscles can go from 15% at resting to up to 80%. And it's kind of like a whole body flinch or poise or preparation for kind of battle or hiding. Usually it's freeze first, right? You'll just kind of lock up and then you might kind of start to release. Um, but there's a general increase in tension and there's specific increases in tension in the core of the body, in the stomach muscles, in the neck muscles, in the back muscles, um, in the psoas muscles, the hip flexors, all that kind of stuff. And that pulls us into these kind of stress postures. And it's these effects um, that are damaging in the long term. Um, it's obvious to see how having long-term elevated heart rate and blood pressure will lead to stress-related you know, heart conditions and ischemic strokes and stuff like that, right? Um, but it's less obvious that things like long-term tension held in the body will lead to stress-related back pain and neck pain, which is one of the hugest causes for uh, absenteeism at work in the States, right? So now, I think it's something like four out of five GP visits are now for stress-related conditions and stress-related or back pain, more or less, back and neck pain largely exacerbated by stress is the largest cause of people missing work in the States, right? So it's, it's a huge, huge deal. And systema, uh, on one level, it starts to attack those symptoms and it encourages you to acknowledge that you're experiencing fear and stress and then to experience it and just kind of map the internal contours of what that feels like. What's the sensation of feeling? Can you feel your blood flow changing? Can you feel your heart rate changing? Can you feel your breathing changing? Can you feel where the tension has shifted? Most people don't even pay attention to that. It's just something that happens to them, right? And in Sistema, we practice doing that. Um, and in doing so, at least we have the awareness that it's happening. And sometimes just that awareness can be enough to, to kick us into taking a breath and calming down a little bit. So on, at the very basic level, that response that you're talking about when you're, you're in a meeting or something and some, somebody's being a dick or something and you want to punch them in the face and you feel this rising kind of aggression, that kind of stuff, right? Um, which comes from fear. Right? Aggression always comes from fear. It's a mask that you put over the top of your fear, usually when you're not willing to feel your fear or... or lead it in the direction it's trying to take you in, right? Um, maybe you're threatened by the guy, maybe, you know, or something like that, or he represents something that, you, that you're scared of for society or something like that, you know? And that's kind of what's driving your aversion to him and that kind of stuff, right? And this comes up. And in a very real sense, 
you feel like because you've been training a while that you've experienced these changes before. So when your body feels them, you're not like overwrought by them and just like, oh, this is just happening to me. And, you know, I guess this is just the situation. You're like, oh, this is the kind of thing that happens to your body when you get stressed and angry. And then your body notes that, labels it. And then even that is enough to, you know, jack you down by 10%, right? The, the rest of it, like dealing with um, how that relates to how the feeling of fear and stress, which is a different thing, right? The, the, the sensation of fear and stress is what happens to your body. And it's the heart rate change and it's the tension change and all that kind of stuff. But that's not normally what people talk about when they talk about stress and fear. They, they, what they don't want to feel is the, is the feeling in their, the emotion in their minds of just sort of the anticipation and the hate it, hate it, hate it, just make it go away, right? That's what they don't want to feel. They don't care if the heart rate's elevated a little bit and they've got butterflies in their stomach. It's, it's, it's the thing, it's how their mind interprets those signals. Um, and it's, that's partly, you know, the, how you feel about stress and how you feel when you're afraid is partly a response to what your body is doing, but not entirely. Um, there's been work done on this, and it's shown that it's kind of a dual response, right, that that sympathetic nervous system firing both causes the physical changes and it separately causes the the feeling the, or the emotion of stress in the mind or the emotion of fear in the mind as well, right, stress or anxiety. Um, and they're kind of – they're related, but they're not um, – they're not entirely dependent, right? They can arise separately from each other a little bit. It's, it's hard to get the entire feeling of stress in your, in your mind without feeling it in your body and vice versa. Um, but they're not 100% dependent on each other, right? You can be very, very afraid and have a very, very strong feeling of, of fear in, in the mind without your body catching up right away and vice versa. So I remember an interview I heard with uh, Springsteen a long time ago where he was talking to a, I can't remember who the other performer was. It was a woman who was also a very... A successful musician who was struggling with stage fright, talking about, I've got the butterflies in my stomach and I feel like throwing up and I just can't go on stage. And he says, oh, that's what I call excited. Yeah. Like, that's when I know I'm ready. So you're talking about being able to be, be conscious enough of the, of the physical sensations and to have enough neocortex choice to label them in an empowering way or in a way that, allow, that again, allows you uh, degrees of freedom as opposed to being a hostage of the, of the sensation. Yeah, so that's an, there's an interesting argument in that as to how much how much of that is actually a choice, right? So some people, so if, for example, when you do stuff, when you analyze the cortisol levels of skydiving instructors, right, you might expect that people going skydiving for the first time strapped to somebody else, right, and they're up in this plane, um, and they they jump. When they first go, you measure cortisol levels, and if um, and of course, like their cortisol levels are spiking like crazy when they're staring down into this map and they're about to jump out of a perfectly good aeroplane and like plummet to their doom and then save themselves at the last minute. Essentially, that's what I do. Or actually trusting somebody else to do it. Insane, if you ask me. But they... <laughs> um, So obviously, predictably, that, that's your first skydiving experience. Your cortisol levels will be super high and you'll be like terrified for a bit. And then when you think you're going to live, um, you start to interpret that as, ha, ha, I'm going to live. And there's kind of an elation that comes from it. And then you land and then you tell all your friends about it. And it's a completely different story, right? When you go out there. Um, the skydiving instructor, you might expect the cortisol levels are way lower. And they're just like, ah, just the day at the office. Here we go. Boom. Like, let's go for this. Not actually true. They have almost pretty much the same levels of cortisol in their bloodstream. They just interpret that as a challenge. They're like, here it is. Like the Springsteen thing like you're talking about, right? They're, they're like, yeah, this is what happens when I go up in a plane and about to jump out, right? So they interpret that differently. And, and so-called adrenaline junkies, you know, adventure sport junkies and base jumpers and people like that, um, get the same thing, right? And that's why they do it. They enjoy this feeling of, um, of the stress hormones, the glucocorticoids coursing through their, 
uh, through their bloodstream, right, and that kind of stuff. Um, how much of that is chosen, though? That there's not a point at which a skydiver instructor feels terrified and says, "No, I'm going to relabel that as a challenge," right? And then that instantaneously changes their experience. That's not true, and there's a lot of self-help literature which says that's what you should do, like the upside of stress stuff. But not to point that out, the Donegal thing. It's you know, oh, if you just relabel your stress as a challenge, you'll be fine. It's like, yeah, that's that's not actually been borne out to be necessarily the way that it gets there. What typically gets you there is experience. And the reason is because the feeling of stress isn't just a response to what your body is doing. It's a complex construction, both of what your body is doing, sensation, right? What's happening to your body? Is there pain? Are you, you know, whistling through the air at 130 miles an hour? Oh, you know, is there somebody with an ax chasing you? You know, the, the, the visual input, the audible input, the, the touch input, all of those things. So sensation is one part, but you can't just relabel that with your executive function and then be fine with the axe murderer, right? Or, or the skydiving, right? There's no amount of being like, I'm fine with skydiving. It's going to make you fine with it when you go out there the first time. Um, but in, included in that soup of sensation and conscious awareness, right? what, what you actually think about it or what you think, think about it is also memory and emotion as well, right? Um, so if you've gone skydiving before enough times, right, and you remember that you felt like this before and last time you lived, right? That, and you've done that 30 times, then that becomes salient. And memory uh, mediates the way that you interpret the sensation of stress from within the body. Make sense? And at the same time, um, focus where you put your conscious awareness. If you decide to put your conscious awareness on, um, you fold it internally and you start to think about how terrified you are and you can't think about anything else but that, or you can't think about anything else but some news report you saw of a skydiver whose parachute didn't open, right? If that's if you can't stop thinking about that, then it's going to completely change your experience and it'll drive it up. But if you start to think about something else, like, um, I don't know, a friend of yours who said they really didn't want to jump out of the plane the first time, but two seconds after they jumped, everything changed and they were fine, and you're focusing on that, that will mediate how you're interpreting the signals too. You're like, oh, this is the two seconds before everything gets awesome, right? Um, in, in a small way, right? But it's it's... What I'm trying to get across is that it's, it's not as simple as an animal fight or flight response, and nor is it um, a bodily response that the all-powerful computers of our brains can override. It's none of those things. It's a complex neurological construction of sensation, of conscious awareness, um, of feeling, and of memory. And it's usually through doing something over and over again and building up the, the memory that you've kind of been here before. That's normally how stress and or anxiety turns into acceptance or fear goes away. Okay, which which leads me to to think about how Systema has actually done that. Um, and so I'm curious about, you know, how it's better than, say, yoga or meditation for this particular challenge, but also something like Krav Maga, which I did um, many years ago for six weeks. And I wasn't, I never got good at it in six weeks, but it totally changed how I walk through the mall, like I discovered when I was walking through the mall, that suddenly I wasn't scared of 14-year-olds in groups, and that I had been before without realizing it, right? Some old, some old pattern. Um, but one of the things that, you're, you know, that we're always talking about in Systema is to stay human and to just do the work, to not do the work out of aggression. So that if, I, if, if you're coming at me with a knife and, and I have to remain neutral about it, but then that's sort of a way I'm, I'm sort of training myself so that when I'm in that meeting, that person just using words, they're not even using a weapon, that I can, I can muster 
the presence to be neutral there. So I'm, I'm wondering what you see as the salient parts of Sistema that, that address this, this issue of experience allowing us to, to reframe. Yeah, I, I think it's the nature of the experience and how you decide to reframe it, right? So Krav Maga, and it's not unique in this, there are a lot of systems that um, will take the feeling of fear and be like, all right, that's fear. You've got to use that, right? You've got to use that. That's, that's where your rage comes from, right? <laughs> and then you kind of put this mask of rage over the top of it, and you, in some ways, just suppress the feeling of fear, or you deny that it's fear, right? Um, and you relabel it as something else. You're like, my heart is beating because I'm ready to punch the guy in the face, right? My heart is beating because I'm ready to kill, 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 like all this kind of stuff, right? So, and not everybody does this. Um, not everybody teaches that way, and I'm not kind of you know, bad-mouthing those teaching methods because in some ways they work, right? They work very effectively, very quickly, and that's what it's designed for. And that's like, you know, the, the base level of military training. You have to take somebody from the possibility of just being too afraid to act and see if you can kind of... Um, get them to reinterpret that as like, this is go time. Let's go and do this. Yeah. And let's, well, yeah. So from, from, uh, you know, if, if it's fight or flight, we, yeah. you've taught, you've taught me that it's actually usually freeze. Yeah. So we're talking about, you know, moving towards fight instead of freeze or even flight. Yeah. Yeah. Frankly, the freeze is inevitable. And, and whether you freeze for like a few seconds or whether you freeze for like 20 minutes in a, in a ball in a fetal position right? <laughs> and the freeze is inevitable. It happens when you get genuinely afraid, right? It happens. Um, if you're highly trained, you'll snap out of that freeze within seconds and then do something useful. Um, if you're not highly trained, then you'll just succumb to it, right? And so what we're trying to do, in, uh, what they try to do with aggression-based um, reinterpretations or therapies, right? That's not common in psychotherapy. Not, they, they don't usually try and counsel people. They take that fear and just hate with it. Like smash, smash, kill everything you hate, right? They don't normally do that in psychotherapy. They normally go the other way and sort of say, okay, take that feeling, experience it, let's relabel it, let's just... Um, realize that it's part of conscious experience and we'll just kind of, and we'll look at the triggers and we'll try and avoid the ones that you can avoid and we'll, um, we'll medicate you through the, we'll medicate the HPA axis, right? The bits of your limbic system that are firing up so that you don't feel too many peaks or troughs. Um, and that's how we're going to get you through like your interpretation of this fear, like as we go through all this stress and, and for the most, you know, there's 40 million people in the States now who are, you know, suffering from anxiety and uh, on some form of like anti-anxiety medication, right? And it's getting more and more common with kids as they're coming up. Um, so that's that's one way of dealing with it, right? Um, but unfortunately, that doesn't do anything to the memory aspects or the conscious awareness. It, it's it's all it does is deal with that sensation of stress, and it moderates the creation of the emotion of stress, right, in the in the limbic system. But it does nothing to affect the memory of what might have planted that anxiety in the first place or that fear in the first place, right? If it was, it was abuse or whether it was like getting chased by a big dog or whatever it is, it does nothing to affect the memory. So you are now dependent on that limbic system altering drug to deal with the thing that's going on. You, you're not actually getting stronger through it. Um, Krav Maga is an attempt or and, and related kind of systems like that are an attempt to change the way that you experience fear and stress by saying, okay, I'm experiencing these signals and we're going to reframe this as go time, right? And then you kind of, by degrees, by, by um, training yourself to be like, if somebody pushes, then I smash. If somebody does this, if somebody gets close, then smash, 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 forward pressure. Let's just do it all at once, right? Um, and in doing so, you reinterpret helplessness, right? Learned helplessness. So you're walking through the mall and you feel like, if this gang of 14-year-olds attack me, then 
I would probably say stop and then try and say stop again, right? And that's probably all you'd have, all, all flail ineffectually with my limbs until they all kick me while I was on the ground, right? Um, but you've gone from that to there's another option here. I remember from class, my body remembers that if I'm surrounded, I should just lay about myself with my elbows with as much rage as possible and, and create a window, right, and get out. Um, so now you have a memory which is mediating your stress response. So you might still feel that little twinge or your body starts to feel the beginning of a threat, but you're like, that's fine. I'm fine with 14-year-olds now. I could just smash them all in the face, right? Um, that's fine to an extent, and it might help you deal with 14-year-olds in the mall, right? Um, but if they actually attacked and then started to succeed and your flail around with angry elbows technique didn't work, um, then you would go back into the freeze response, right? And then you would go back into learned helplessness, essentially, right? So it's, it's good up until it isn't. It's good until it works. And the other thing that it does is that that reframing over time means that you just start to interpret everything that might cause you fear as a root of aggression, right? So the guy who accidentally spills, spills your drink at a pub, um, you know, it, it causes you a little bit of kind of like conflict, you know, um, anxiety and all that kind of stuff. And instead of responding to that with like, hey, and the guy's like, hey, you end up making each other aggressive and angry and get into a fight over almost nothing, right? So you start to respond to almost everything, like, or an argument or, you know, a threat to status or somebody, you know, telling you that you're incompetent at work, your boss or something like that. It will just make you angry in a whole new way because you, you're training yourself to respond with aggression. Systema does something else, which is trains you to acknowledge and experience that feeling, um, but not to relabel it as like it doesn't matter. And it's not actually to relabel it as, a, as to become completely neutral either. It's to try and instill a different response, which is to become curious and interested as to what's going on inside your system. And, and then to be open about experiencing this, to observe and allow what's going on um, and watch it in the other person and watch yourself as well. And then over time, you start to then just respond more appropriately to the situation, right? Not with too much and not with too little. So the example of the knife is an interesting one because um, in one way we train ourselves to be a little bit more neutral and not to be terrified of the knife. Um, but that's not to say that we train ourselves to be complacent and be like, meh, it's just a dude with a knife. It's fine, right? We don't actually ever want to get to that point in that kind of Gavin DeBecca way. We, what we want to do is quiet the overreaching aspects of, of our stress response, like the, the excess tension in the muscles, the highly elevated heart rate and, um, and the shifting blood pressure. We want to use our breathing and uh, our tension control and all those other things that we practice in Sistema to get kind of um, get a handle on those and bring them down to a low level so that the noise is less. And against the background of that noise, we can hear the real signal of fear, like the, the real um, little intuition that the person's about to attack and which angle they're going to attack from. You can use that then to um, trigger your movement and to trigger a useful response, right? And so that's really what we're trying to do is to try and get ourselves down to a level where our fear becomes useful. We're not trying to suppress it or get rid of it entirely. We're trying to get it down to the level at which it becomes a useful intuition. Does that make sense? Well, so, so that the, there, you said that the, with, with fear that our um, blood flow is shunted to sensory organs, right? So to be able to perceive more. Um, so it sounds like that, that that's the signal we're trying to to enhance so that we can, you can still see, because if, if you look upon the other person as an enemy or a monster, right, as, as somehow morally evil, those, those thoughts are going to color everything else. Or, or like if, it's, if, it's, if we're simply looking at physics, then we can deal with physics, right? The, person, the person's, you know, state of grace is, is not really relevant when they're coming at us with a knife. Their angular momentum and mass and speed are, are what's relevant. And so we're, we're just trying to focus 
our our blood flow on the types of of sensory inputs that are going to be useful in surviving and, and prevailing in that circumstance. Yes, um, so I'll say to that, yes and no. Right? Yeah. I, I think at the, at the most basic level, that should be the goal, right? And the, the most basic level should be, let's try and remove the unnecessary tension and the unnecessary reactivity, right? And leave ourselves free to sense and respond to the actual attack, the actual threat. What is the guy actually doing? And yeah, and that comes down to how's his body positioned and can I see that and can I predict the angles and vectors? Not predict in a conscious sense, but can I allow my body to do what it's trained to do now, what we've practiced doing in training again and again, respond to a knife from an angle, whatever it's going to be. So I think at the most basic level, yeah, that's the goal. So if you're going from can't do anything to want to be able to try and function um, in a in a martial sense or defend yourself against somebody, that's the most basic level, right? Um, but actually there's a level... I think um, a level beyond that that we aspire to or, or work towards, right? Um, which is that we do actually acknowledge the other person's emotional state, and we do actually acknowledge the fact that they're a thinking, breathing, feeling human being. We don't just look at them as, as a system of levers and uh, muscle and bone, right? Um, that we actually start to think about psychologically where are they, right? Um, if we can start to see their aggression. Right or see their kind of their emotions, their desperate need to keep you away from them, or their need to, you know, to hurt you or something like that. Right, um, and yet it doesn't infect us. We, we can kind of keep ourselves clean enough to see somebody else's emotions. Then we can start to use those emotions as well. Right, so we're not just applying, repositioning ourselves so we can apply levers on the guy and put him down. Um, we're psychologically looking to see how we can take advantage of the fact that he's he's both aggressive and terrified. Right and take advantage of the fact that he might be cocky because he has a weapon, you know, or whatever that's going to be, right? And, and that's where you get into the really interesting stuff. And, and I think, actually, if you really get into how to defend yourself against a knife, I think that's imperative. It's absolutely necessary. You can't – it's not enough just to try and turn yourself into a, a, a combat robot and see if you can react faster than the guy because he has such an advantage and can move so fast. It's very, very difficult um, if you're in a real situation and the fear comes so quickly, right? So – um. So I, I think, and even, and this is not even unique to Sistema, right? If you look at a really good boxer, um, once you get up to a certain level, it's not like, oh, this guy has more knockout power and he can throw punches faster or has slightly heavier hands, right? And once you get up to a certain level, all the professionals are just phenomenal at punching. Right? <laughs> and then they can throw the same combinations or different combinations. And it's not that one has a special move that somebody else doesn't have. Um, it becomes a psychological game at that point. It becomes uh, the ability to see the other person's fear, their tendencies. And so they're looking at each other on an emotional level where they realize it or not, right? That's what they're trying to do. And then and then little feints and tells and things like that become interpreted in this wider picture of like, oh, I think the guy's broken now. He's terrified of my left hook, right? I can see that. I can see the fear in his body that starts to move. And so now I'm going to kind of threaten him with the left hook and when he puts his hand up, here comes the right, you know, that kind of thing, right? So, and, and I think in other sports, you know, tennis, like badminton, you know, anything with fast reactivity, I think once you get to a certain level, it's not just how quick can I sense this ball coming across the net. You, they're not looking at the ball, right? They're looking at the other guy and how he's positioning himself. And a lot of that, once you get to the highest, highest levels of things, just becomes pure psychology and emotion, right? So I think um, what we're trying to do in Sistema in a lot of ways is to address that straight away, not to train for years and years and years and years just on pure physicality and then say, all right, now you've got your black belt, we can start to think about <laughs> the emotional aspects we're, we're acknowledging right away that the emotional aspects are key and that if you don't 
deal with stress and fear, then you, you're going to be very, very limited in what you can do anyway. It doesn't matter how many techniques you have. It doesn't matter how many awesome elbow combinations you learn that you think you can throw at your 14-year-olds. You're not going to get a chance to deploy them if the stress response um, takes over uh, in a way that's, <laughs> that you haven't been prepared for. Mm, that's really helpful. Because, um, you know, you, um, you talked about like really seeing the other person's human reactions, just kind of, you know, seeing their humanity it's even it's almost it's almost a form of respect um as opposed to you know you're we're not trying to diminish them in any way to to reduce their humanity to turn them into a a caricature or a uh, you know a character in your morality play of the universe you're trying to see them as a unique human being um and i guess in you know you've told stories about you know being in bars and using sistema to stop fights before they begin Right by not having to not having to have your your own pride connected to you know standing up to somebody, so it's you know, kind of a, and that's clearly you know where it comes into play for me in a meeting, right? Because I'm ideally I'm not trying to win by putting the other person down because there is no there is no winning in, in interpersonal. It's either you know you got to deal with them again tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. And and to give that example, you know. The, this has happened a few times over the last uh, 10 years, you know, where you've I've experienced somebody very, very aggressive, out, usually in a place where everybody's drinking and late towards the end of the evening or something like that, right? You'll just get one of those guys who's just kind of creeping around looking for an excuse right, to start a fight. You get them everywhere, right? And this has happened a few times. Um, and you'll see this guy trying to get a rise out of you, right? And sometimes they're unnecessarily physical. They'll come up and put their arms around you and slap. It's like a challenge. It's like a, a male alpha, you know, uh, silverback gorilla or something but like slapping hands on you seeing what you'll do you know seeing whether you're kind of you're going to blink now in that situation you could go the aggression route right you, you're going to experience some fear because there's an uh, there's an encroachment you should anyway if you don't then you're not paying attention to your stress signals right if you allow somebody you don't know who's a, who's fairly aggressive to get within eyeball poking range of you right? <laughs> and then re- reach their hands up and slap them on your back and you just don't care then either you're too drunk and your, your sensation is just not there to, to focus on what's going on or you're, you're actually kidding yourself. And that's actually a dangerous state to be in as well. If you're not ready, if you're not poised psychologically and physically to move, then anybody could do anything to you, right? So you, you have to have that awareness and that poison. That's the Gavin DeBecker gift of fear thing, right? That you actually want to pay attention to that. Um, but if you interpret that signal as the guy gets too close, he slaps an arm on you, he's like, hey, buddy. You know, is that some sort of girly drink or something like that, and that kind of stuff, right? And you respond with aggression, right? You just treat them like you reinterpret your fear signals as a challenge, and then you start going, well, "What the hell are you drinking?" And it just kind of upscales and all that kind of stuff, and it and it becomes a fight. Then probably, you know, well, you just have to find out who's going to win the fight. But nobody's going to win that. Both people are going to come out slightly injured, or something's going to happen, right? Um, the next level is the one you kind of. Uh, we're hinting towards in the first place, which is that kind of neutrality. And that could be the guys like, Hey buddy, what are you drinking? All that kind of stuff. looks like a girly drink. And you're just, you kind of, you feel that stress, you feel that fear. And then you kind of let it go and you end it within yourself and you just hang out there going, yeah, I'm not drinking much. I'm just doing my thing. Right. Um, but in my experience, that doesn't necessarily make people leave you alone. Right. That they'll just continue trying to get a rise out of you. Like that they're confused by the lack of um, response. And so they keep prodding. Right, or they interpret it as submissiveness sometimes, right? If you're not completely calm about how you do it, um, then they can interpret that as submissiveness and then just keep kind of pressing in that kind of way. Um, but if you redirect, right, if you can feel instead of, te- or 
you know, instead of scanning him and being like, okay, he's got his arm on me, I'm calming myself down, so my stress response is fine. And if he moves now, I'm going to kick his leg out and smash him into the face, you know, all that kind of stuff. And instead of going through kind of like the, the Jason Bourne pre preamble, right? Instead, you try and think about why is he doing this? Is he lonely? Right? Is that he's, did his friends go off and leave him and he's got nothing else to do? He had one too many drinks and he's feeling sad about something else. Do you know what I mean? And it might seem silly in one way to kind of think about somebody who's potentially an enemy or could hurt you in that way, but it's actually way more useful. And in the most recent example of this that I can remember, which is a couple of years ago now, um, the guy was out, you know, he was on, he was visiting his mother in North Carolina. He was uh, like, I think it was South African, but he was, and, and he mostly worked in kind of like Norway and other places like that on like a, oil rig management or something. I know this because I got talking to the guy after he was aggressive in the first instance and looking for a fight. I actually got him to a point where he was buying me drinks and then I left him with a barman. I'm like, he's your problem now. I left, And that was the end of the altercation, right? That I just left the guy. Um, but he, he essentially was stuck, right? He'd, he'd been out drinking and, in, and he didn't want to go home drunk to his mother's place. He, he was embarrassed to go home drunk and he couldn't quite remember where the, his mother's address was. So he didn't want to call his mother Right. And the guy's like 40, right? He didn't want to call his 60 year old mother in the middle of the night who was coming to visit and be like, I'm too drunk because I can't find your house and blah, blah, blah. Tell me what your address is and I'll get a taxi. So he got to this point of embarrassment and fear about being, you know, getting the smack down from a 60 year old mother and wandering around the car park, not knowing what to do about that in that decision. And then seeing a bunch of guys come out, he just started an aggressive confrontation. So he turned his fear into aggression and was ready to start a fight and get into something really, really big because he was scared to go home to his mother. Right. I wouldn't have known that had I not tried to engage him on a human level and be like, Hey, you know, where are you from? What's going on? That kind of stuff. And then he started talking to me and he was skeptical at first and that kind of stuff. He goes, why are you interested? Blah, blah, blah. But I was calm enough and expressed enough interest that I could turn the situation around a little bit. And then I said, let's go back in and have a drink kind of thing like that. And he bought me a couple of drinks and then he started talking to me about his mother and he started crying. Right? And then I talked to the barman and I'm like, and he's like, you, we should, we should do some shots. I'm like, I can't do shots. So I've got to go home to him. And then I started being self-deprecating. I'm like, I'm just a, you know, a totally under the thumb married man. I have to go home to my wife. I'm not like a big man like you. And he's just like, Oh yeah. yeah. So I understand, you know, I know, but you should really stay for drinks. That's fine, buddy. You can do whatever you can do. So I gave him kind of like a psychological, backdoor like an out right so he felt weak and then he felt strong and we ended the whole thing on a happy thing he gave me his phone number he's like yeah when i'm in town we should go out I'm like yeah i'm definitely gonna do that <laughs> and then i went home and nobody got hurt and everything was fine right um but what i'm getting at is is that that acknowledgement of the human condition in the in the best situation i think it can help you do things like that which is to turn a situation that might have been violent into something where just nobody gets hurt and everything's fine um but even if it does turn into a fight understanding where his aggression is coming from and understanding that he's emotional is still useful from a practical self-defense point as well. So um, in physical terms, it's useful. In psychological terms, it's useful. And then even if it's not anything that's going to become violent, like a work meeting or just a, you know, a, a, a marital conflict, you know, you have an argument with your wife, if you can try and see her point of view, if you can zoom out, right? So the base level is you just react to it and shout louder than she does, right? If you're in an argument with your wife, the next level would be, I'm totally calm. I don't know why you're angry. I don't know how well that works on your wife, but it doesn't work very well on mine, right? If she's got the rage and I just go completely calm, I'm like, we should just stop and think about your rage and where it's coming from, right? That's not going to get a good result typically, right? That kind of stuff. So that's why that doesn't work. That's what I'm saying. And so the next stage up is you try and calm yourself down. So at the very least, you do no more harm to the argument, right? You don't exacerbate it. But then the next stage is you, you attempt to zoom out and you attempt to see what her emotions are and where they might be coming from. And then when you do that, 
and it can be as simple as just waiting, listening, trying to take in as much information as you can while you're calm. Even if she's shouting and like coming, I'm not saying my wife shouts all the time, stuff like that, right? But um, but if you try and see where where that's coming from, right? And you try and take information, and then if you don't understand, then you try and ask questions that the other person can correct you on. And right, are you angry because I? didn't do the washing up or because I left the washing. It's the third time I've done this, you know, something like that. Right. Um, and then they can clarify, right. Once you start to kind of summarize and try and kind of say what it is that they're doing, they can sum it back up for you and make it clearer. And then you start to understand more of their emotional position. And in doing that, you've acknowledged that they're human, right. In the beginning of it. And you've also got a bit more information to work from and you can start to kind of talk from that human level. So, um, so I think there are levels but short, sorry, long answer to a very, very short question on that one. There are levels. There's a base level of like, all right, just don't go batshit, right? That's the first level. The second level is try and calm yourself down because that will probably help. And the third level is see if you can calm yourself down, remain human, and acknowledge somebody else's humanity and your, and your shared relationship in this fear and this stress, right? And then you can start to do things differently. So I don't know if there's more things on your, uh, in your notes that you haven't covered yet, but, um, I mean, my question is, is sort of a practical one now. Let's say I'm coming to class and I want to work on this. Like this, this feels like a really important thing in my life, the stress and fear, um, the freedom. And let's say my instructor is not focusing on that today. They're focusing on, you know, shifting your weight or something else. How can I prepare myself to get something out of every class that can help me with this? Is there some way I can come in and, and thinking about it? Or preparing, you know, so that I can I can sort of self direct my learning, even as my instructor is working on maybe some other topic, that I can get some benefit in the in the stress and fear realm. Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, in the first instance, I would say show up early and take some time to de-escalate yourself. Right? Um, don't go into class and then expect the class and the exercises and the instructor to to be the thing that's going to bring you down from the, the stress ledge. And then, because that will probably happen, but it will probably happen about an hour and 20 minutes into the class. And then you've got 10 minutes to experience stresslessness and working with your fear and stress. And then you go home, right? So if you show up like half an hour, 15 minutes early, if you can lie on the floor, just do completely relaxed static breath work, right? And see if you can inhale, exhale, isolate, tense different parts of the body, um, regulate your heart rate, bring your pulse down a little bit through stretch breathing techniques, all of those things scan your body and kind of take your stress diagnostics first and, and figure out what your state is right now, right? Your base state. And if you can bring it down a notch, right? Or at least become aware of where that's at. Having established that baseline, um, if you're doing exercises, if, if the emphasis is on shifting your weight and doing push-ups or, or building up structure in your fists so you can punch things, I don't know, like something not related to fear and stress specifically, um, then there are actually stress and fear triggers that just happen within your body just through movement. Right? Um, the body is in, inherently afraid of falling down in a way that it doesn't like, right? just of losing balance and falling the ball. So if you're doing an exercise where you're shifting your weight, pay attention to what happens as you shift your weight and where these little kind of uh, flurries of tension kind of come in, right? or if somebody else is taking your balance. Where's that moment past which you go from feeling okay to being worried like you're in free fall and then hitting the ground and being afraid of the contact? Um, so you can start to actually work with your fear and stress as it relates to falling. Right? And then you can also do the same thing as it relates to contact and pressure. If you're just moving around on the ground, for example, like doing rolling around close to people, notice what happens when you get close to people, when you get too close and there's a little kind of elevation 
in the tension in your body. There might be even, you might forget to breathe. Right. And then when you start to move over people or around people and make physical contact, again, there might be changes to your level of um, stress and anxiety as you would diagnose it on the inside of your body. So in a very real sense, what you're doing is through this contact inoculation and this um, playing about with balance, you're stressing yourself in small ways, right? Breath holds are another one as well um, that allow you to experience your stress response and work with it in the moment, right? So you could literally do one push up and, and drag it out over a whole bunch of time, do it very, very slowly and just analyze it at different positions within that push up. What's, what's, how are you feeling, right? Not only which muscles are tense, but what's the little voice in your head saying? Is it saying, give up? Is it like, we can't do this? Is it like, fight, fight, fight? You know, so you can actually just kind of turn your, roll your eyeballs back into your head, stop looking at the outside world and analyze your body on the inside and be working with stress all the time. Right. Um, and then pretty much any exercise that causes you to use proximity with another person or push and pull or takedowns and especially strikes. Strikes are huge, right? They're an enormous way. Receiving strikes is so beneficial for this. Um, every time you receive a strike, there's a little bit of feeling that comes with it, unless the person you're working with is spectacularly good and just delivers no emotion when they hit, right? But that's very, very rare. Usually there's something on the end of it, right? And that usually there's some emotion that you have um, that they're punch, punching you in, literally that way, right? So you can start to kind of think and feel those things, right? So all it really is is the conscious awareness, of, of what's going on, like where do you put that awareness? You can't change your memory of stress and fear in the moment, right? Um, that happens with experience over time and attenuation. Um, you can't change your feeling in the moment right away. You can't change your emotion immediately, but you can observe it and you can let it go through and out the other side. Um, but the big thing that you have control over is your conscious awareness, right? um, what you're focusing on within your body or within the relationship between you and your partner, right? You can throw your awareness onto your partner. You can throw your awareness inside your body. You can throw it into your little finger or into your toe. You know, you can put it wherever you want in order to analyze the situation and get more information out of it. And all of those things help you, believe it or not, they might not seem like a direct corollary, but they are a direct corollary to working with stress and fear as it relates to work and arguments and verbal conflict and all those kinds of things. The more you practice these physical um, stress simulations and recovering from them, then the more adept you become at real life stress, right? Because it's less intense. Well, thanks very much, man. That's a, it's a quite a wordy subject. We might have to cut this one down. <laughs> but thank you so much for taking the time to uh, chat about it. Maybe we revisit this one at a later date. I can't, I can't uh, revisit it too often. So, uh, thanks. Thanks, Howie. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about training at NC Sistema, you can visit us online at www.ncsistema.com. If you'd like to find out more about Sistema classes and seminars worldwide, please visit www.russianmartialart.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, please take a few minutes now to give us a review on iTunes. This is probably the best way of helping us get the word out. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for future guests and discussion topics, please contact us via www.ncsystema.com or email me directly at glenn at ncsystema.com. That's glenn with two n's at ncsystema.com. We welcome your feedback. Many thanks, good health, and see you in training. <laughs>